This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall. And I'm Nakazi Oates. We are hosts of the channel. Today, we are bringing you a special co-hosted episode on Professor Glenda Gilmore's new book, Romery Bearden, In the Homeland of His Imagination, An Artist's Reckoning with the South. That's right. The title has been released today with the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Glenda Gilmore is a professor emerita at Yale University in the Departments of African American Studies and History. She is the author of the classic award-winning text, Gender and Jim Crow, Women and the Politics of White Supremacy in North Carolina, 1896 to 1920. She is also the author of Defying Dixie, The Radical Roots of Civil Rights, 1919 to 1950. Glenda Gilmore is one of our most respected and admired teachers, mentors, and she's actually my dissertation co-director. Indeed, Professor Gilmore was my master's thesis co-advisor at Yale. And I think another reason that this interview is so special, Amanda, is because you and I, we met for the very first time in her class, Readings in African-American History Since 1865. We sure did. So many memories. It was a moment of organizing, of protest, and of so much learning. Professor Gilmore has been one of my most influential teachers. So let's take this opportunity to learn more and get into the interview with Glenda Gilmore on Romery Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination. Dr. Glenda Gilmore, welcome to the show. I'm just delighted to be here, especially with both of you, Amanda and Kazi. 
Well, congratulations on your new book. I'll just say that the experience of reading this book was a joy, in part because of how many quality photographs and reproductions of Bearden's art that you included. I think that the images, which are stunning and always supported by your analysis, invites readers to engage Bearden's art and the primary source in a more direct way, where they can also form, um, where readers can form their own interpretations alongside your own. So, Speaking of that, let's get into our first question. This book asserts that art can be an archive. In Bearden's case, it is an archive of family history, of memories home in the South, of life up North, of battles with depression and against Jim Crow. And in revealing this to us in the text, I became interested in your role as a historian, as a writer, as an African-American studies scholar, and how that translated into you making sense of this archive. It seems to me that you resist imposing an order onto it, um, other than the one that Bearden himself gave us through the chronological production of each work. Um, Instead, it seems that you let Bearden carry us through um, this archive of art. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about this, how you conceptualize your relationship to his archive, and what African-American studies in particular allows you to do in this regard. Bearden did not impose any order on his imagination. And in the book, I try to follow and analyze his imagination, which is, of course, impossible to do, but it it was always before me. He, um, let me give you just a little background about him. He was born in 1911, Charlotte, North Carolina. He lived in Pittsburgh, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, um, and then ultimately Harlem. Uh, For most of his life, he died in 1988. And throughout his life, he produced art from the time he was a young man in Pittsburgh living with his grandmother um, until really up until the time that he died. His last collage was uh, in 1988, just finished, just before he died. During that time, for 30 years, he had a day job as a social worker And while he was recognized mostly in Harlem, mostly within the black community until the 1960s when he uh, began working in collage, he um, had a sort of, he had moments of great change in his life when he changed his artistic practice. So the book is a biography of Bearden, but it's not a linear biography. So I'm glad that you noticed that you realized I I didn't impose order. We don't move from him doing one thing to another, except sort of globally. It's also a biography of his artistic practice. I could never have written this book as a historian if I hadn't Um, really about 2008, started spending most of my time at Yale in African-American studies. We had um, people from every discipline, lots of art, lots of literature, lots of poetry, uh, and shared it within our department, within our practice, with each other, all of our work. And so 
listening to Coven and Mercer talk about art or Elizabeth Alexander talk about poetry, Hazel Corby talk about narrative was really expanding for me as a historian. And I began to see limits with the within the way that historians write history. In this book, I wanted to do something very different from my other books, which are argumentative, as historians are supposed to be. Um, they have a through line. They have an argument to prove. And I'm more or less prove it in, in my monographs. But in this book, what happened while it's important, is not any more important than what Bearden thought happened in his life. People have talked about his work being autobiographical, but it's only partially and momentarily autobiographical. It's really a blend of his subconscious, his memories, which were few of the South, actually, and his imagination, which is, hence the title, Romery Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination, because he's able to put these things together in a nonlinear way, not necessarily with any order at all. The book is, I wanted to honor that. The book is kind of a collage in itself. Um, in the beginning, as a his, it was very hard to shake being a, a strict historian, I simply recorded the material. I had a lot of context for Bearden. I came to the project because I lived in Charlotte for 20 years from 73 to 94 when the Bearden, when Charlotte discovered Bearden. And he was almost a household name in my first book, Jenner and Jim Crow. His great grandmother and his grandmother appeared as uh, members and leaders of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And then in Defying Dixie, his mother, who was a Democratic politician, is really all over the newspapers and the archives. She's a very prominent person. So learning that after I had been in Charlotte, where people tended to sort of think that his family had been poor sharecroppers and they'd gone to Harlem for opportunity, um, really intrigued me because they had opportunity. They were incredibly successful middle-class black family. He lived with his great-grandfather, great-grandmother, his grandmother, and his parents in a family complex in Charlotte, um, three houses and a grocery store. So I could see very clearly. I went and stood and hit the front yard where his house was, where his front porch would have been, and and saw the view, the mountains, the train, the elevated trestle that he puts into his art. But at the same time, that context as a historian only got me so far because he's inviting his viewers to tell stories about his art. He's not imposing order. He's not limiting his imagination. And I wanted to try to write a book that did justice to that. Absolutely. And um, Glenda, I want to pick up on one of the points that you made that you want to 
produce a biography of his artistic practice. And it's remarkable to see Bearden produce art at a very young age, as you mentioned, um, in Pittsburgh as a child, all the way up into his death in the 1980s. So for about seven decades, he is producing art. And then also we see um, moments throughout the book his artistic practices change. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, there are a few visual artistic expressions that he um, carried out. He was a cartoonist. He was an abstract expressionist. And he also created collages. Can you tell us about each of these practices and where he was in his particular life? Yes, it's uh, it's really it's really interesting, and I actually didn't expect that part of of the book to be that interesting. But he does take things from each of his artistic phases and put them together in the next one. So I was able to see this progression and see elements that it's almost the he has almost the perfect background for collage so his he spent time with his grandmother and grandfather in Pittsburgh his mother's parents they ran a boarding house he uh, didn't want to be there he wanted to be with his family in Harlem they were con going through a kind of moment of trying to get settled in Harlem. And they left him with her mother for about a year and a half when he was probably nine, 10. He was very lonely. His grandmother gave him um, an easel and some art supplies. And so he began drawing and painting in watercolors. He always throughout his career painted in watercolors. So that's sort of a constant and drawing is a constant. Um, He, contrary to what many people sort of take him, believe they take him as a folk artist. Some people even have called him a primitive artist, but he was so intent on making art, he drew every day. He painted watercolors almost every day when he was young, that he transferred in 1930 from Lincoln University to Boston University to take a two-year course in fine arts. His mother, Bessie Bearden, um, didn't want him to do this. She wanted him to be a doctor. Most of the African-American doctors in the country came from Lincoln University. But he made a bargain with her that he would go to BU, spend two years with art, and then come back to NYU and, and graduate in something more practical. So he had intensive fine art studio training and art history training. Then when he got back to New York, he began drawing cartoons. One of his um, uh, friends, E. Sims Campbell, was a cartoonist for Esquire. He drew the Esky um, character and uh, who, that lecherous uh, caricature in Esquire who 
leered at white women all the time. People didn't realize that his, um, that the artist who drew him was an African-American. So he had that model of a cartoonist. He drew for the uh, Baltimore Afro-American and he drew for the Boston University literary magazine and then for the NYU um, literary magazine. But you can really watch his cartooning become art. He takes, um, he goes, once he graduates to the Art Students Guild in New York and studies with George Grossi, who was a refugee from Germany. Grossi does line drawings with a reed pen. He also did collage, which he called photomontage. And Grossi has a tremendous influence on Bearden. Um, He talks about him a lot in interviews, in letters, and they're both interested in unpacking everyday experience, modern everyday experience for the viewer. So he toured, so for 35, 36, 37, he's um, mostly drawing, but then he begins painting in gouache and in social realism. His mother met Diego Rivera, who was in New York painting murals, and Bearden was entranced by this and adopted social realism. He also thought that social realism could carry a political message. Many of his cartoons, of course, in the crisis were political. Don't buy where you can't work, etc., or anti-lynching cartoons. But with social realism, he could take that a level deeper and, um, and look at working class people, look at everyday people and portray their experience, black and white, uh, in ways that were really not accessible uh, in commercial print, in white newspapers, etc. Um, he does, he works in social realism until World War II when he, of course, uh, in the army, enlists in the army, and can't take all of his materials, so he begins to go back to watercolor. And he's now using Grotzi's thick lines, which are also reminiscent of Henri Matisse and the Vaz, uh, these thick black lines. He's using those in his watercolors and comes back to New York after the war and is... Um, working in abstract expressionism, he calls himself a semi-abstractionist. He still has figures. He still represents actual things and actual people. But Samuel Kuntz, who is the man who thinks he basically invented abstract art, an agent, Motherwell's agent, etc. He represented Picasso after the war, um, took Bearden into his exhibitions. And Bearden works in a very abstract way. When he's doing that, he's um, representing usually heroic themes or the crucifixion, 
that sort of thing. And he's working in watercolors, reed pin oils. So Kuntz and the abstract expressionists turn into something they call intrasubjectivism, which is art with no representation of figures or tangible things. And this is not something Bearden wants to do. It drives him crazy. Um, He feels as if it's uh, really self-indulgent. And it's, he wouldn't say it's not art, but it's not his art. So he falls into a deep depression. Uh, Coming out of it in, after about eight years, when he went, he went to Paris briefly and then, lived in New York, and he takes all of those influences and puts them together in collage, where he he doesn't just cut things out in his collages. He paints, he uses, uh, he draws lines, he uses the jumbledness, and the, he all, Bearden always says he's a cubist, and he uses the cubism that he's been using in social realism and in abstract art in the collages. So, it really comes full circle. And throughout it all, he's, he's striving to, he says he's, he, he uses art to show what's human about all of us. And he's striving to, um, to get people to recognize something about themselves in his art and to be able to tell stories of their own about it. Wonderful. I just want to build on that um, and ask specifically um, about uh, the the international um, dimensions of Bearden's life and the international dimensions of his art. Um, it seems that his earliest works are definitely in dialogue with the African continent. Um, you tell us or, that he is a refugee from the South. He, as you mentioned, he ends up enlisting in World War II. Um, he lives in France for a little bit, and he eventually lives in St. Martin with his wife. And even when he's in New York, he's cultivating this cosmopolitan world of the Harlem Renaissance. But even throughout life, as you mentioned, he has mentors from Germany, um, you know, people in France, as well as friends from Alabama. So I'm just wondering how you how um, how these international influences come to life in his art and um, how that speaks further to this universalism that maybe he was gesturing towards. He he was a refugee from the South and that migration, it seems so moving from Charlotte to New York or to Pittsburgh, which he did when he was about five, doesn't sound like an international experience to most of us today, but it was incredibly uprooting and a completely different environment. The Pittsburgh work is is very much like Pittsburgh. It's uh, a little gray, a little beige. It's not very colorful. It's grim. Um, it's angular. Uh, he's always in, influenced by place. On the other side of it, 
he and his wife, Nanette Rohan, built a house in St. Martin where her parents were from. And immediately he begins using much more color, much more primary color in his art. He says that um, he takes St. Martin back to New York with him. He even, so he left the South when he was five. I think he only came back once. There's only, he did visit his grandmother in Maryland. But in 1940, he went to the South long before the St. Martin experience for a couple of months. And that experience also introduced more color into his art. Um, Bearden was a sophisticated man. He lived at the crossroads in Harlem of an international scene. I mentioned his mother um, befriended Diego Rivera. She was she was a democratic politician. She was deputy commissioner commissioner for the Internal Revenue Service. She founded a social settlement house, Utopia House, the one that Jacob Lawrence learned to paint and draw in. Um, so they knew everybody. Her, she knew everyone who came through. And then Bearden would work um, until about as a social worker until about dinner time for till it was time for his clients to fix dinner. Then he would go to his studio and work on his art. And then late nine o'clock or so he'd go to the Savoy or the Hotel Teresa in Harlem. And this is packed with people who are coming through Harlem who are um, from all different kinds of backgrounds. And uh, it's a, a, a physically black space that white people found themselves in the minority in. So that was an interesting experience for him as well. Um, I think that he always had wanted to go to Paris. He didn't get to stay as long as he wanted, but that also had a profound influence on him because he simply learned he didn't, it's probably the only time in his life other than the period he spent of a few years when he uh, was depressed and couldn't work in the fifties that he just looked at things. He's wherever he is, he is, he's incredibly, visual all the time in real life. And those experiences are help form his imagination in unexpected ways, I think. You know, one of the places that um, Bearden lives is, as you mentioned, in New York City. And New York City is one of the sites for the Black Arts Movement. And, you know, during that movement, the way that artists began to think about art, more specifically Black art, revolutionized um, conceptions and dominant frames of how to think about art. And Bearden has a particular conflict or tension with interpretations of Black art and how art is emerging during the Black arts movement. 
in the late 1960s and the 1970s. So I wondered if you can talk about the conflicts that he has, or perhaps more specifically, to what extent is Bearden a bridge between the Harlem Renaissance and the Black arts movement? To think about this, we need to think about what his life was like in the 1930s and juxtapose that with his life in the late 60s. But also we need to think about what the historical context was at both times. He, um, and I think it's absolutely true that he was a bridge between the Harlem Renaissance and the civil rights movement, as were, you know, other people, Langston Hughes, et cetera. But for Bearden, that meant in the 1930s, black artists were stereotyped, excluded, not recognized, and were kind of put into a box of, um, well, if they didn't do sort of landscapes and old master-looking paintings, they did everyday life. They were seen as folk artists or primitive artists um, and pretty much not given a chance by the white establishment. I was stunned uh, that you know the Met didn't exhibit black artists. The uh, MoMA didn't exhibit black artists, but neither did the galleries. And so there's, it's a matter of, of making a living or not making a living because there's nowhere to be seen or to exhibit or to show your art. So Bearden, when he's a very young man, writes uh, an essay about we ought to judge art based on the art, not the painter. Um, he should be able to represent anything or anyone, just whether he is black or white, and we should judge it on its merits because that's what he's fighting for, to be able to be judged on his merits. So, he says he'd like he he wants to represent the universal human condition. He wants to speak to everyone, and he pretty much does that. Um, he is comfortable with, particularly in social realism, with all kinds of depictions of all kinds of people. But as he moves forward into collage in the 60s, he is mostly portraying the African-American experience. Mm. But then they form Spiral and um, want to be active in the civil rights movement. He's always been left, very left-leaning politically. And the Black Arts Movement says, well, we represent Blackness. That's what our art should be, and we sh- we should do that at the exclusion of 
other things. And for Bearden, Bearden, one of the reasons he liked abstract expressionism is that he didn't have the what he called the burden of representation in that. But for Bearden, the black arts movement threatened to limit and to impose a different kind of burden of representation. So he he doesn't, there's no sort of squabble, there's no sort of um, break with the black arts movement people. He simply has about 40 years experience on many of them and already has been on a journey through his own artistic practice and um, is convinced that representation is a double-edged sword, really. Well, I want to, yeah, build on that and these questions um, surrounding uh, Bearden's uh, relationship or his, his idea of himself as an artist and how that informs his politics or the reverse, how his politics inform his art. Um, we learned that Bearden, as you mentioned, he begins um, organizing an art collective in response to a Met decision, a Met museum decision to feature all white artists for an exhibition that's supposed to be on Harlem's, on the Harlem's art. Um and we know that Bearden is kind of moving around in these political worlds. We know that his mother is very actively engaged in progressive politics. So um, I wonder if you could speak more specifically to the ways that uh, Bearden was left-leaning um, and just give us a sense of what his politics were. He, he was in the middle of politics growing up in Harlem and the politics was both personal, it was his, but it was also, he was exposed to lots of leftist people because his mother was so prominent. She, um, she decided when they moved to New York uh, and women got the vote that she would not be a Republican, she would be a Democrat, because Harlem had been previously predominantly white. It was changing to predominantly black, but it was a vital center for Tammany Hall Democrats. So she started the Tammany Hall Black Democrats and um, constantly was campaigning. People were in and out of their house all the time, politicians, prominent leftist figures. Um, and she worked uh, for the Scottsboro defendants. She joined the Friends of the Soviet Union, which was not a communist. She wasn't a communist, but she was able to, without fear, express what other people might think were radical opinions. The friends of the Soviet Union were, um, excuse me, supporting uh, Scottsboro, uh, full racial equality. Bearden himself is, in his cartoons, always in tune with the political um, issues of the day and making statements. But really, 
is politics, when you come down to it, are really humanist politics. I don't, he doesn't really launch into long political discussions. He simply, he's simply ecumenical. He accepts everyone. He is able to live a life that doesn't have He's an artist. His he doesn't have his his politics don't have costs. Yet he's got a battle to fight. For example, um, with the New York museums about representation and about equal access. So I think, in many ways, his politics were personal. He you know, knows artists and writers, some Harlem Renaissance people, some not, who just can't make a living, who can't get seen because they're African-American. And he wants to open up the world um, to those people. In the end, I'm not sure that he, for example, in the 70s and 80s, I don't hear him we don't have papers, complete papers, but he's not talking about Republican or Democratic politics. But the civil rights movement was a real watershed for him. And so he does organize this group. Uh, artists want to know how they can help in the civil rights movement, but they also realize their time has come to show their art, to show their work. And... um to to open up black artistic expression to the world. His wife, Nanette, uh, is a, has a dance troupe, is very avant-garde, um, and all of it's it's all of a piece from performance to art to politics for Bearden. He wants an open, accessible world. And he does, at any point in his life, whatever's necessary to make that happen. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Glenda, I want to drill down on this point around representation, or as Bearden puts it, the burden of representation. And, you know, you discussed his um, personal experiences with the art world and trying to build and construct his identity as an artist. Um, around universalism, but depicting um, African-American life. But I want to turn and to think about the particular moment that he um, is situated in, which is modernism and postmodernism. So could you tell us about how um, modernism and postmodernism allows for Bearden to remove himself from that burden of representation or the categories of representation for African-American life 
I think it's funny. I didn't expect to be as interested in Bearden's abstract expressionist paintings as I turned out to be. And there's now, a, you know, people, it was collage that he was famous for. That's what people wanted to see. There is a, a Turing exhibition of his abstract work now. I think that he, so to, Bearden is very interested in old masters, European artists, South American artists, and he is also interested in mythology, uh, legends, imaginative sorts of things. So he wants to have the freedom of someone like Cezanne to paint whatever he wants to. And he wants to have the ability to every painting, while we see his work often as autobiographical, every painting is not about him. He wants it to be about humans. So um, abstraction enabled him to do, for example, a series on uh, Ulysses. And he was able to take on this sort of heroic myth and do a series of beautiful paintings on uh, something that would you that you would have thought would be far removed from his own experience, far removed from his own situation. Yet, in your imagination, nothing's really removed from your own experience. We read, I read detective fiction and I'm not a detective for God's sake. You know, it's a sort of um, ability to live larger than what one life or one set of circumstances could possibly contain. And so he's, he begins I think that's why he's attracted to Cubism, to that kind of modernism in the 1930s. It is abstract enough to move him out, to give him license, but also to um, share something with people far away that suits him to incorporate things that are not directly, that don't directly impinge upon him. He was constantly open to experience. He's, um, he's got a really good temperament and it change and, and novelty doesn't bother him. It opens things up for him. Well, I want to move to another topic. Um, I want to talk about love. It, <laughs> it was beautiful to read about the love between Bearden's grandparents, um, which is one that you juxtapose with the love between Bearden's parents, a relationship that's exacerbated by his father's alcoholism. Um, and this, these dynamics are sort of culminated in Bearden's painting titled Lovers. 
Um, so I wonder, um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that painting and if you learned anything about the love between Bearden and his wife that, um, maybe also, um, speaks to some of the themes in that work. Um, and more broadly, I just wonder about that relationship. Um, and if that relationship or even Saint Martin, um, became a homeland later in his life. Um, well, let me, let me speak just briefly about his great grandparents who Henry Kennedy and Rosa Catherine Kennedy, with whom he lived in the family complex. Um, they met, let's see how old they would have been 17, 18, 19 when they met and married, um, Henry Kennedy was enslaved at the time to Woodrow Wilson's father and Rosa Gosprey was, they were in Augusta, Georgia, was also enslaved and they were married during the Civil War. They're, they clearly, in, and here I just have photographic evidence in their their um, amazing good humor all their lives to want their family to all live with them um, and their status in the community, the respect they had in the community. They had incredibly loving and productive lives. Um, And Bearden, his mother and father, Bessie Bearden, Uh, had been living in Atlantic City, New Jersey, when she met his dad, uh, Richard Howard Bearden, who was up there working. He went to Bennett College and I think went to work in Atlantic City in the summer and then stayed, kept working. And they had a very tumultuous relationship. Bessie Bearden was a force of nature. She was one of the most accomplished women, self-invented women I have ever encountered. She wrote a a weekly column on Harlem for the Chicago Defender, in addition to all of the politics. Um, And his dad, not so much. Um, They had hoped when they went back to Charlotte, they thought that Howard Bearden would manage the family grocery store, but that didn't work for him. He had a couple of brushes um, with the police and uh, came not to came to think the South was not the place for him. And then um, he and Bessie were downtown shopping, and a mob thought that his father had kidnapped him when he was about five years old. Remy, um, his mother dressed him in a dress and Mary Jane shoes and little white socks, and he had long blonde curls when he was about four. As boys from upper-class families were dressed, Woodrow Wilson was dressed the same way. Um, and so the mob thought that his dad had kidnapped a little white girl. So the uprooting of his family two or three times, um, including to Saskatchewan, really took a toll on their marriage. Uh, As I'm sure 
did Bessie's propensity that she never, she always wanted to be surrounded by friends. And um, so their house, people in and out of their house all the time. Um, he drank. She, there's some notes when she went to see a doctor about his drinking, about Howard's drinking. And he drank constantly throughout his life. He could never stop. He was a really loving man. He loved his family, but he wasn't very effective. And she was hyper-effective. He worked as a supervisor in the New York City Sanitation Department um, and kept that job all through his life. Rumery loved both of them. He realized his father's limitations, but he loved his daddy. He adored his mother, and his depression was prompted by her premature death in part. Um, He's a bachelor, though, and there's all kinds of gossip in the papers all through the 30s about who he's going out with. They have very, uh, what we would call modern sexual attitudes. His mother was quite clear-eyed about uh, people having affairs and, you know, the sort of bohemian lifestyle that they were leading. Um, But he, Bearden, um, keeps company with a woman named Jean. I wasn't able to figure out who that was over a period of years. But then when he meets Nanette Rohan, they, he's in his 40s, they just immediately... um, decide to get married. They're going to lose no time. So what was their relationship like? It is, um, you know, it's always hard to tell about somebody else's relationship. But in this case, I think the proof is in the pudding. Um, He was happy. He really was able, after they married in the early 1950s, and after she told him, jerked him out of this depression that was probably caused by being prescribed the wrong medicine, um, tranquilizers for heartburn. Uh, They had a full life, a productive life. They enjoyed being together. He loved St. Martin. She had given him that gift of, of a whole other place for several months a year. Um, He admired her work, her, her dance, uh, studio and her theater, her dance troupe, and they lived. Um, they lived large. They had lots going on. They enjoyed themselves, and they both um, enabled each other's career. All that said, he did get up every morning, I think, including Sundays, but I'm not sure and go to his studio in Long Island City and paint and work. Um, So everything else other than art for Bearden was the surround. The art was the thing. And she enabled that. Enabled him to be happy with that. And she was busy herself. Hmm. On this point about um, women, strong black women 
admiration for um, women in Bearden's life, I noticed in the book that there were few depictions of Northern women um, that made an appearance in Northern, particularly um, when he lived in Pittsburgh. Yet most of the depictions or the images were of Black women that were in the South. And I was surprised that we didn't see any illustrations of Black women um, in New York City. I wondered if you could explain why he recalls Southern Black women um, or the homeland of his imagination more than Black women of the North that would be considered the promised land of his imagination. It's really interesting. Um, I should just quickly go back and mention lovers, which I didn't mention in answering that question, because it's about men and women. In fact, it's a figure that incorporates both a man and a woman in the same body. And it it looks like a struggle. It's a, a line drawing. It's been lost. Um, we don't know where it is. He's, and that, I think, was a depiction of his parents' marriage, which was a battlefield. There's another painting that I couldn't get called Family, um, where a man is sort of menacing a Madonna-like figure holding a baby with a fork. So I don't know if domestic violence was involved. Part of this about the South and the North could be my choices because I do end up more toward the end of the book looking at the homeland of his imagination in the South. But at the same time, that is what he was engaged with doing. So his Southern work is matriarchal. His work in Pittsburgh is about men and they're a little bit scary and it's a little bit grim. It's hypercubist. It's always interesting, but I think that too reflects in a, a tangential way, the change in his circumstance. He had been living in a household with his great grandmother, grandmother, mother, aunt frequently visiting, a a really matriarchal four-generation family of women. Of course, Henry Kennedy was a powerful figure, um, but he felt safe and loved. And so when he returns to the South in his imagination and his art, I think he wants to reflect that. He wants to reflect the, the love, the the feeling he had when he was a child, when we tend to be more focused on women um, who are caring for us. Uh, in Pittsburgh, his his family, his grandmother ran a boarding house. There were probably, the census will say there's 10 boarders, but they're probably closer to 20. They say um, that they filled the attic with cots in those boarding houses for workers because workers worked on shift in the steel mills. The whole experience is a little, feels alienating in the work. These are powerful men whom he depicts. They are austere. They're uh, 
they're determined. And that's how they look. They were also mostly strangers to this little boy, these people with whom he lived, because they're they're boarders, they're steel workers. They're probably not paying him much attention. Um, he does he does depict women at the Savoy. Um, he depicts, but he's a, but less so than myth and legend and and that sort of thing when he's working in abstraction. Um, So I think it's an apt observation. I do think that it was in Harlem, though, that he had a huge circle of male friends. He, He has just scores of friends. He's constantly hanging out with other artists, other guys, photographers, etc. So um, it's more of an inner uh, inclination to show Southern women and Northern men than it is a uh, an actual representation of his reality, uh, because clearly there are women in both places, there are men in both places, but it's it's really interesting. Um, you mentioned uh, in your last response uh, briefly uh, Bearden's uh, childhood, um, and I want to talk more about that in the context of uh, thinking about Model Sleet, um, what you call the meta history of African American life and the distance between history and imaginative artistic representations. So we are introduced to Miss Model Sleet um, in the beginning of the book, and we're actually returned to her in the epilogue. So can you please tell us more about what she represents? She's one of these very strong matriarchal figures that Bearden uses to tell stories about the South. She, people asked him about her, and he would say, well, she was an, someone who lived near me, who made things grow in her garden. To Bearden, it was magic. He was always attentive visually. Um, He once stared at a tiger lily that his grandmother grew in front of the house. And then when it was picked, mourned. Um, So he's interested in her the way that she looks, he's interested in what she does in her garden, and he's interested in her produce. Remember the Kennedys and the Beardens had a little grocery store, and so probably Model Sleet came in to sell some of that produce. He depicts her as looking like a very powerful figure, almost like a man, Um my own grandmother wore men's shoes, bought men's shoes to wear in the garden because they didn't make women's brogans, you know, strong enough. Um, everybody in the South wore a hat. Women, white women generally wore sunbonnets. Black women generally wore straw hats. And they wore, I was just thinking about this the other day because in Ireland, people do this too. They have house clothes that they wear to farm and 
around the house and and, and don't wear anything out anywhere else. Well, people had house clothes that they wore to garden, often the same outfit. So she's standing there with a big apron. She's got a basket full of produce. He continues this series of paintings. And in the end, uh, Marin Schwartzman, who's doing an oral interview with her, says in the last painting of Model Sleep, she's vanished. She's not even in the canvas, just the things that she grew. And Bearden says, that was Model Sleep, the things that she grew. To me, I call it the meta history because it's about how people moved from rural places to urban places, brought the rural with them, made a way out of no way, made gender roles work for families rather than abiding by a certain gender role. Women had gardens. Men didn't tend gardens in urban areas. I think I found Maudel Sleet. I can never, ever be sure. I, in all the city direct, <laughs> excuse me, all the city directories and all the censuses, there is no one named Model Sleep. There never was. And now, but there was, I found someone named uh, Maud Slade who lived two blocks from him. She was a young woman, married at 17, grew up on a farm, so knew how to garden. She married um, a visually impaired jazz musician who played the organ at Bearden's church. So they would be close to these people. Um, and the whole family moved on and left her there. They moved to Washington, D.C. So she was growing this garden. Her family had left. She was in constrained circumstances and must have been a very colorful and powerful figure in his life. Um, Bearden once said that, you know, all the people who thought that way are gone. The incorporation of the outdoors, of the rural experience, of the doing it yourself in daily life is something that's become more and more remote to us. And to Bearden, living in a deep urban area, it was magic. It was absolute magic. Um, her garden, if I'm right about Maud Slade, is under the Bank of America Stadium. So uh, it, I end the book. Let me see if I can just find that with had mixed feelings about living in Charlotte for 20 years, as you might have gathered. It's a wonderful place, but it's not, doesn't honor history. So I end the book with Model Sleet's actual garden lies under the 33-acre Bank of America Stadium. As Bearden once said of Charlotte, all this is gone, and the people are gone, and the people who thought that way are gone. Despite that sense of loss, Remy Bearden's art teaches us that the past is ever present. And I'm convinced that one Sunday afternoon while watching a Panthers game, I'll see one of Sleet's squash vines sprout at the 50-yard line, and it will grow magically, monstrously, 
until it covers the field. To me, Mario's sleep, sleep represents what you can't get through being a historian. The sensory experience, the visual experience, the daily life experience that is so hard for us to capture. That part, Glenda, is so critical. And I just want to elaborate on that. Um, you can't get all of the interiority of um, a particular person, but you do this exceptionally well um, by capturing the particular downsides of recreation or remaking. Um, and there are a number of points in the book where you do this. And what did you want readers to take away from the book about the theme of reinvention and its personal cost as well as its, its possibilities? You know, as you mentioned, remaking oneself, there are so many ways to do it. And, you know, you said that there's migration from um, the rural areas to the urban areas. There is um, geographical um, migration from the South to the North and the um, stunning reframing that you offered at the beginning of if what if we think about um, migration, even in the context of the U.S., as an international um, particular type of um, frame. And we see this with Buren's parents um, as they migrate um, um, to the North and the personal costs that each of the parents experience, but then also Bearden experienced this as an artist, particularly with the painting of the crucifixion. So what do you want us to gain um, about the theme of reinvention? I think that's such an interesting question. We all hope that when faced with change and adversity, we can be flexible, we can reinvent ourselves. And um, I want, wanted in the book to think about what was lost with each of these reinventions as well as what was gained. You know, people say, oh, the Great Migration, people went north for opportunity, but they don't talk about what they left behind. Um, they don't talk about what was literally cut out of their lives as they were set down in a new place. Um, Bearden, I think, I think that what's interesting about him to me as far as reinvention is he always knows who he is. He lives in his imagination. He spends, no matter where he is, he lived in a world where the dead people were alive in his heart. Time is not the same to him as it is to many of us where we look for 
you know, landmarks and progress as we go along. We think we could move and have this opportunity. He has a constant that he doesn't have to reinvent, and that's he has something he loves to do. He loves to be an artist. And so that spine, that railroad track in his life, allows him to change, to move, to be open, because he counts on that to tell him who he is. And to Bearden, when he's working, all of time is available to him. It's not, he doesn't simply live in the present. He lives in Henry Kennedy's time. He lives in Nanette Rohan's time. I think that what I would say about reinvention is, and and really is that most of us don't use our imaginations like he did. Unfortunately, we don't have an imagination. We don't at of the sort that he did. He created worlds, and those worlds that he created were worlds he lived in when his circumstances changed. That's an amazing ability, and it would be lovely to have it. Well, that is certainly a beautiful um, ending um, to leave our readers with today. Um, Professor Gilmore, I want to thank you for being on the show today. And I want to thank my co-host, Nakazi Oates, for being here as well. We hope that you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore about her newest book, Romari Bearden, In the Homeland of His Imagination, An Artist Reckoning with the South. The book is out. It's out today with the University of North Carolina Press.